Let me pray one more time before we look at the word together. Father, we're opening your word, so we ask for you to bless our understanding and open our hearts to the things that are here because uh, you acted in history so we would know what you care about and what you're like. And we just appreciate so much the great truths we're going to find here in the text today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, I turned to Matthew because uh, we want to look at something that Jesus was saying. You know, in the last week of Jesus' life, uh, he was teaching in the great temple. Uh, he was always teaching that during that week. That was a predominant aspect of what he was doing. Now, the New Testament, the New Testament gives us the substance of what Christ taught, but um, obviously not everything he said. You know, uh, we've just got so much space, and so all, all the main things and the most important things that he taught we have with us. Matthew's gospel is 28 chapters, right? So you've only got so much to say, so much to say about him and what he taught. But Matthew chose to devote one entire chapter to Jesus talking about the Pharisees. And it's quite interesting because while the Pharisees were a big headache for Jesus um, and they were trying to kill him, and while the Pharisees were a major source of persecution for the very early church, the mostly Jewish church, you can't really say they were a problem for more than a fraction of church history, just a little bit there. Um, Pharisees, even as any kind of a problem for Christianity, really died when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. So it kind of ended their major existence there and influence. So, so why was Matthew devoting like a whole chapter out of his just 28 chapters to, to these guys that aren't going to be around all that long? Why devote so much attention to them? I mean, they were a lay order of teachers and defenders of Moses that just didn't last very long on the world stage. But, and here's why it's in here, the spirit of the Pharisee is an ever-present danger to true spirituality and to knowing the Lord for yourself, to know him personally, to be rightly related to him. The Pharisee spirit not only perverts the faith beyond recognition, but it leads people to hell. It literally does do that. It, it so misrepresents what it means to be truly spiritual and to follow Christ that we need an ever-present warning about that heart. And that's why Matthew 23 is in the Bible. So Matthew 23 is all about Pharisees. Jesus, just before he went to the cross, he's having a long talk about the Pharisaical approach to religion that has kept many saints from going down their paths. That's why we have it in our Bible. So the problem with religion, and it's common, is making the faith all about us and not about God. That's really the kind of the core problem with Pharisaical faith. And you can really pick up Jesus' main point in this little paragraph um, starting at verse 6 in Matthew chapter 23. The whole chapter is good, but I'm not going to spend the whole day there. So talking about the Pharisees, Jesus said, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. 
Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You could spend a lot of time thinking about the words right there. And you can see in those words how often churches and people who identify as Christians actually think the same way as the Pharisees did. Then Jesus says they keep people from entering the kingdom of God. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So they keep people from going to heaven by opposing everything that God is doing because what God is doing exposes their self-focused religion and it diminishes their importance. So they hate that. And Jesus zeroed in on them pretty early and they hated him all during his ministry. Then farther on, Jesus just, well, he really nails it here. Uh, he says they are the same kind of people that hated the prophets in the Old Testament and murdered them. And he says this about them. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So here Jesus is telling very religious people that they are headed for eternal punishment. That's what he's warning them about. And without going into Pharisees too much, or after all we are doing Amos today, I, I think it's well worth hearing the Lord Jesus' words and just pondering them. I mean, exactly how do we escape? How do we escape the sentence of hell? How would they escape the sentence of hell? You know, um, you know who's been in the news a lot lately? Elon Musk, <laughs> the super billionaire guy. And he's pretty entertaining sometimes, but this week, you know, he's trying to buy Twitter. This week, a Muslim wrote him on Twitter, sent him a blessing, hoping that he would believe in God before he goes to hell. And Musk actually responded to that tweet. I don't know how many people tweet him and he responds, probably not very many. But um, he actually responded to this, and this is what he wrote. He said, thank you for the blessing, but I'm okay with going to hell if that is indeed my destination since the vast majority of all humans ever born will be there. <laughs> now, of course, that's a really foolish response, and it, it's flippant, mainly. He's not serious. He's not a religious person. Uh, but that tweet does show how the human mind pushes thoughts away of what happens after we die, of what could come to us, of what the world is, the universe is really all about. It shows the human mind. Most people will be there. Now, most, that's not how people usually say it. They usually say, all my buddies will be there. All my friends will be there. But Jesus' own words tell us that we should have no expectation of seeing our friends in hell. Or anybody. In fact, if you think about the word Jesus uses to describe eternal judgment after we die, he calls it outer darkness. And what does that mean if not being alone with yourself? It's not a group party going on there. Like the day the, day the Roman officer professed faith in Jesus, all, so many of his fellow countrymen were not believing in him, and here's this Roman soldier putting his faith in Jesus. This is in Matthew 12, verse 11. Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So there's no fellowship in hell. Uh, it's really being stripped of all the joys that are here and all the pleasures that we have here. You know, this world is a blend. It's a mix. It's got horrible things and wonderful things. But after the judgment, it's either all wonderful or all horrible. There's nothing to see in hell. There's nothing to experience in hell. There's only regret and recriminations and anger. There's nothing interesting there at all. Your friends, you won't see them. So how shall we escape that? Well, Amos chapter 9 is going to help us. It's all about escaping God's judgment. And of course, it's about this world. So consistent with the Old Testament emphasis, the Old Testament focuses mainly on things in this world, mainly. It does refer to the afterlife, but it mainly focuses on historical events, the things that are going on in the real world. While the New Testament focuses mainly on eternal things, although it also has a lot to do with how we conduct ourselves in this world. So the temporal world of the Old Testament is where we actually see God acting. That's how we know we can put our faith in him because he's acting in history. So that when he speaks of spiritual things in the New Testament, we'll, we'll know that God is serious about those things. So, so we're looking at a nation state that was in covenant with God that completely doesn't care anything about him and he's going to bring it crashing down. So that's what we're looking at. So God judges people with terrible punishments in this world. So we know that if he speaks of judgment after death, that's a real thing. It's a real thing. You can push it away all you want, but that doesn't change what happens on that day you die. So the Old Testament in many ways is a centuries-long demonstration of the human condition, which is that man is a sinful, wicked being, creature. Now, you don't have to persuade me of that. You know, before I was a Christian, nobody had to say, you're a wicked, sinful creature. I, I knew that. One thing I got was that. I knew that. You didn't have to persuade me about that. I knew, I knew of my failings. They were profound. But even with promises of every blessing in life, and that's what the covenant people, the Jews had, Israel had that, God promised them if they just obeyed him, they would have every blessing this world offers, this world offers. And they chose sin. They chose to rebel against him. And as the Old Testament develops, then you start seeing the promise of the Savior, which was made all the way back to Adam and Eve, but you see that developing more and more, and we learn more and more about him. It becomes more and more clear. Man is a sinner. That's the one message. And the other message is God is going to provide a Savior from sin. So in the New Testament, the Savior comes, and the promise of eternal life is in, with, and through Jesus Christ, who took away the penalty of our sins. He literally bore it on himself. So the people of Israel are, are wholly given over to wickedness. They are smug. They are unjust. They like to have parties, but they really don't like to help the poor. The one thing they want is more, more, more of whatever they've got. And they will have more no matter who they have to crush and take advantage of and cheat to have more. That's where they were. So God says they will cease to be a nation in the world. The party is over and terrible destruction awaits. And the vision and prophecy of chapter 9 is telling them there is no escape. There's no escape. 
which is exactly what Jesus was trying to say in the New Testament there. So Amos begins with the fall of a temple in chapter 9. We're in chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. This is a vision, okay? He's seeing the Lord. It's a vision. And he said, smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake. The capitals are the top of columns. That's not a capital city. It's the head. It's those cool-looking little things on the top of a column that holds up a building, right? If you strike those, guess what happens? The whole thing comes down. Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. And I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refuge, refugee who will escape. No escape. So if you smash the capitals of a temple, it's all going to collapse. And if you're inside, you're probably not coming out. But if you did manage to come out, he says, the sword will hunt you down. So now this is Israel. So he's not, this is the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about a temple, but it's talking about the temple at Bethel, the big golden calf temple that the first king Jeroboam built right after the kingdom was split, about almost 200 years before this time. So that's all told in 1 Kings chapter 12. So this is the temple where the first Jeroboam, there's a Jeroboam now, this is Jeroboam II that Amos is dealing with, the first Jeroboam literally offered sacrifices to that calf, kind of as a priest. And he created a whole priesthood that was totally not scripturally based. It wasn't about the Levites. He just picked his own people to be priests. They did whatever they wanted to do. They monkeyed with what God had commanded in terms of worship. So he made up a religion. So in the vision, that temple is being destroyed from above. Strike the capitals and the whole thing collapses. And those who don't die in the temple but want to flee, the sword will cut them down. That's the vision. No escape. And right away, Amos starts talking about, the Lord through Amos starts talking about places people might think they could escape, where they could go, right? How could we get away? So there's a series of little couplets. Remember Hebrew poetry, you have these two-line couplets there's a whole series of them here, and they all begin with the word though, or some translations have if, okay? So if this, or though you did this, that kind of an idea there, right? Uh, it's not going to help you. So verse 2, they might try going down, or if that doesn't work, going up, okay? So verse 2, though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. So God is speaking. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So, of course, this is a fanciful idea. You can't really go to Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament is a Hebrew word that means, well, it can mean the grave, just where people are buried, but usually it's referring to the abode of the dead, where the dead are, their spirits are. So even if you could get down there and hide, he's going to pull you up from there. And even if you climbed up into heaven and somehow found your way into heaven, he'd pull you down from there. Did, did you know that you can't hide from God? <laughs> yeah, I mean, dig down. I mean, go ahead. Dig down to where the dead are, and uh, there my hand will take them. Go all the way up into heaven, and there I will bring them down. There's no escape in the spiritual realm. There's no place you can go because God is the Lord of all things. We just sang about that. Heaven and earth. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. So you can't escape him by going to heaven, and you can't escape him by digging down your 
into the, the abode of the dead. Well, what about the natural world? Verse 3, though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them down from there. So Carmel is the kind of a mountain, series of mountains that were the highest points in Israel in the northern kingdom. And he says, you climb up, climb up those mountains, see if you can hide up there. God will find you there. Those are his mountains. He made those mountains. How about the ocean depths? This is really interesting that they would even say this because they didn't have submarines or diving bells or anything like that in those days. But verse 3, though they conceal it, that's why it's sort of a fanciful extreme example of trying to hide. Though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. It says, go ahead, go down to the bottom of the ocean. I've got creatures down there that can eat you. Well, where else could they hide? You can't go to heaven, you can't go to the Sheol, you can't go to the ocean depths, you can't climb the mountains, there's no place to hide. We're, you know what you could do is just surrender. So if God's going to send an enemy against you, just surrender. Just say, hey, uh, we'll do whatever you say, just let us live. But you know what, that doesn't work if God ordains or he decides that they will not be merciful to you. And listen, the people that are coming against Israel just a couple decades from Amos' time, they're the Assyrians. Taking lives is what they do for fun, literally. So I remember I told you they used to pile massive mounds of human skulls from the cities and things they conquered. So those are the people that are coming. Verse 4, though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there, this is God speaking, I will command the sword that it slay them. So that won't help to surrender. God can govern the acts of men, so there is, when he decides that judgment is coming, there's no escape. Why? Well, the last line of verse 4 tells you why there's no escape. Verse 4, the very last line. I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. And that just means that God's going to judge them. He's going to punish them for their sins, which were huge, and they were unrepentant. So the only thing that matters is what God determines that he's going to do, right? He decides these things. And of course, we can appeal to him, but how do you appeal to God? Do you, you put him on your terms? If you spare me, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that. That's not how it works. You come on his terms. And that's what people don't want to do. They don't want to come to him on his terms. He is God, holy as we sang this morning, and we are tiny, unworthy, sin-filled creatures. So Israel, they don't know the God that rescued their ancestors from Egypt. They don't understand him. They haven't tried to understand him. He sends them messengers and they don't listen to them. He creates wake-up calls, bad things that kind of to shake them up and get their attention. They don't pay attention to that. They are spiritually asleep. They're snoozing. And they won't wake up. And he's, he's shaken them to wake them. And they won't wake up. And it's that kind of foolish unwillingness to believe in him that dooms Israel. They re and, and they're religious people. These are religious people. They worship. They sacrifice. They hold festivals. They keep the Sabbath but they do not understand whose universe it really is and who they are actually dealing with. So, 
in verse 5, the Lord reminds them of his nature. So we, saw, we sang about the, the Lord this morning as the Lord of all creation. Here it is. The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt, the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth, he who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. God made the world, people. God made the world. He divided the water from the land. He made life. They still haven't figured out how life showed up. God made life. And when he moved to deal with the wickedness of man, when the Bible says the, the heart and intentions of men was only evil continually, he flooded the entire world. He broke up the fountains of the deep and that created giant tsunamis who washed over all the land masses and then he withdrew the waters after doing that. And all of creation is under his sovereign power, all of it. God is also sovereign over the nations and, and their boundaries and where peoples are and who they are and their migration patterns. And that's what verse 7 is all about. He's, this is pretty interesting. He says, are you not, he's talking to his covenant people Israel, are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me? O sons of Israel, declares the Lord, have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr? What's interesting about this, he seems to be addressing the Israelite notion that they're special. See, they still think they're special because God rescued them from Egypt. They just don't love God at all. They don't care anything about him. But they still think they're special. It's the human pride thing again. It's, that's the spirit he's attacking here. And he says, you know, you are special in the sense that God called them to be a holy people, to represent him to the world. That's why they were special. But they weren't special in themselves. When you start thinking you were chosen because you're wonderful, you've lost everything. They weren't chosen because they were wonderful. And that's their mistake. They didn't, they didn't even read Moses. They didn't read the law of God. God was really clear about why he chose them. So, you know, when the Israelites were about to go into the land and possess it, Deuteronomy chapter 7, so Moses gives this speech. And Deuteronomy 7, 7, just listen, Moses is speaking here. He says, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than all the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. But repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Israel should have had those words burned into their hearts and they just ignored him completely. Didn't care. So he says here he chose them in love because of his promises. He made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to establish their descendants forever as his special covenant people. But he also says, I repay those who hate me to their faces to destroy them. And 
The Israelites in Amos' time, almost all of them, not quite all, they hated God. Now, if you said, do you hate God? They go, no, no, we worship all kinds of gods. We're all, for, we're all for Jehovah, Yahweh. We're all for him. We offer him sacrifices. In fact, the temple prostitutes that we have at the Golden Calf Temple is some of the best in the business. They really, they're tops. We worship, we worship the true God. But by being so wicked, they hate God. By being unjust, they hate God. By oppressing the poor and the weak, they hate God by doing those things. In no way do they honor him. So they weren't chosen because they were special in themselves. They were chosen to be special as a priestly nation. Exodus chapter 19, that's what God says he's creating them for, to be a, a, a nation that represents him to the whole world, to mediate the truth to the world. And they failed, dismally failed. So the Lord is comparing them here to these pagan nations that are in the area. They're not more special than Ethiopia. Ethiopians in Amos' time, they think, migrated from um, the northeast of where Ethiopia is today, um, in Eurasia somewhere. The ancients thought it was Arabia, actually, where they came from. The Philistines came from Kaftor, which could be Crete. Scholars disagree about that, too. The Arameans, the Syrians, they moved to their location from Kir, which is farther east. So there's all kinds of migrations always going on of people, groups in the world. You know what? God's directing all of that stuff. It's all part of his sovereign plan. And so Israel's thinking, well, we're really special. But they only were special to serve him. So they're not special because he delivered them because they were wonderful. That's not why he did it. So God ordains providentially everything that happens and he can make it happen or he can stop it from happening. So while these people were not delivered miraculously like Israel was, the Ethiopians are just moving around and the, the Syrians were just moving around and whatever, God delivered Israel with a mighty hand so that they would know that they were being set apart for a divine purpose, a purpose they completely failed to do, had no interest in doing that. So verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. So here they are. They were called to be holy people. Holy people, set apart, righteous, good, faithful. How tragic that they let all that go. So now they have the name, the sinful kingdom. That's what he calls them. Now America by God's standards, is certainly a sinful kingdom. It, and it's, it's true that we're not a covenant nation. We're not in a special covenant with God like Israel was, but all nations are judged by God's righteousness. In fact, Solomon says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14.34. So Israel is now the sinful kingdom. So verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. So it's going to cease to be a nation. Massive destruction is coming, death and slavery and captivity, but a remnant will survive, and he will not totally destroy every single person. So some are going to make it through all this destruction. Then verse 9, the Lord compares it to a, a, a sieve, you know, or sieve, sorting out like grain. Behold, I am commanding and I will shake the house of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in the sieve. 
and not a kernel will fall to the ground. So he's sparing some portion, right? He's going to shake everything up, but he's doing that to preserve those righteous ones and save their lives. Now, most of us have had some sort of experience with shifting and sifting things and using a sieve of some kind and causing that separation to go on. Uh, usually you're, you're shaping, shaking it for something you want to keep, right? Either the, keep, the thing you want to keep is going to fall through or the thing you want to keep is kept on top, right? Depending on what you're doing or what you're using. Have you ever, anybody here been to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home? Did you guys see the 16-sided barn thing that he made, the, the treading barn that he made? It's like this most, he invented this, George Washington. It's like a two-story thing and on the top there's a slatted floor and it's this big 16-sided structure. And you would put all your grain that you harvested from the crops in that top floor, and then you would take your horses and run them around in a circle inside there, and they would break all the, the husks with their hooves. And then the grain would fall down below, and then they would scoop it up. And there'd only be a little bit of the chaff stuff left, so it was almost pure grain, but there's a little bit left. So then they would take it outside and use these mats and they would shake that and then the, the grain would fall down through there and all, it would be pretty pure. It was like an amazing invention that he did. So that's the idea here. Um, one commentator said that a sieve is a, an instrument of discrimination. You're getting rid of something and you're saving something, right? That's really what you're doing. You're sorting the good from the bad or the useful from the useless. So. God is going to shake Israel to identify this tiny remnant that is faithful to God. So they will come to the surface. They will be spared, preserved. And the nation is going to fall, but the remnant will be spared. But most, which would be the overwhelming majority, are going to face death or slavery. And God particularly identifies those that are going to face death with the people, the very specific people who say that will never happen. It'll never happen. Verse 10. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say calamity will not overtake or confront us. It'll never happen here. We're too powerful. We're too rich. We're too good. The, ma the vast majority of people who face eternal separation from God, like Elon Musk, think it will never really happen. It won't really happen. God is not holy. There's no judgment. Either we die and that's it, we're gone. We're just biology after all. Or we die and something really nice will happen to us. Most modern people live in those two worlds, thinking about the future. Why we assume, or why we expect that something nice is going to happen to us, is one of the great mysteries of mankind. Why make that assumption? But it's human nature to do so. So we're saying, the kingdom of my life will not fall. There will, there's an escape. It will not happen to me. My soul will not face, it will not happen that I would be excluded from the glory of heaven. Why do we think that? It's just human pride that thinks that. 
It's not an honest look at oneself. If we really believe the universe is about us, we should have whatever we want. I guess that's it. I'm the center of all things, and if there's a God, he certainly loves me, because I'm so lovable. But heaven, heaven actually has many pleasures, but it's not about pleasure. It's actually not about us. Heaven, first and foremost, is about God. And if God is nothing to us here, why would he acknowledge us as fitting to be where he is there? Just think about that. Why would he? I do know that God will not allow heaven to become like earth. And if I went to heaven as I am, as a sinful self, I'd wreck it, right? And if 10 gazillion people were there, it'd be, it'd be worse than earth. That can't just be like that. It can't happen like that. All these people full of self-will, arrogant people, defying God, and they're going to go to heaven? We actually have to listen to what he says and what he's telling us. So hell will not be a joyful reunion of buddies. It is outer darkness. And even if you could make out people there in that darkness, their faces are only going to show sorrow and anger and horror and sadness. No pleasures of any kind. It, it's, it's so sad even to think about it. But God offers a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ. A perfect Savior. He is the door to heaven. But you have to humble yourself and repent of your sins and throw yourself on his mercy because it's only by grace, God's free grace, that anyone is saved. But you've got to surrender to him. You've got to do that. And when you do that, he starts to change you from the inside. And he starts to fit you for heaven. And all that sin burden that you've carried, it all goes on Jesus Christ. He bore it all. That's why he died such a horrible death, to show us what sin actually deserves. Just look at the cross. That's what your life deserves. But he bore it for you. He bore it for you. All right. There's five verses left in Amos. They are completely unlike everything else in the entire book. They are entirely positive. They're full of joy and blessing. Why would Amos stick such joy at the end of all these dire warnings of no escape and definite judgment and impending doom? Why would he do that? Well, we'll talk about that next Sunday. <laughs> so, let's pray. Our great Father in heaven, you are the judge of all the earth. That alone should make men tremble, and someday it will. But you are also a gracious Savior. You are the judge who paid our debt to justice, the judge who dies in the place of the condemned. If we will have you as our true king, our creator, worthy of all honor and devotion, then all will be well with us. We rejoice in the way of escape that you have provided. Because not only have you protected us from your judgment, you've given us the most wonderful Savior a human mind can even comprehend, the glorious Jesus Christ, who deserves all glory and honor and praise eternally. And in his name we pray, Lord. Amen.